One of the most important parts of having a healthy church is having a healthy church leadership. I think we can see in looking at the New Testament that there are people called elders. And at least the New Testament example is that those elders uh, are more than one. They're in the plural in local churches. Leaders will, will inevitably press their own character onto the congregation because we're set forth as models and we are, are called to be teachers. We will inevitably in some way be, be modeling and teaching things that, that cause many in the congregation to look like us. And that's great insofar as we look like Christ. It's disastrous if we don't. And so what we are looking for in leaders are, are these little pictures of, of the Lord Jesus. That leadership that these elders are to exercise is to be countercultural. It's not to be self-serving and for their own betterment and for their own agenda and for their own kind of name and glory, but it's for the good of others. It's, it's sacrificial leadership. It's costly leadership. It's leadership that has the good of others in mind at, at your own personal expense. By God's grace, I've been able to serve with a plurality of elders in my particular congregation and have in a couple of other congregations. And I can't tell you what a benefit it has been to sit around the table with those guys and these tough situations of shepherding have come up and I've thought to myself, I don't know, that's, that's tough. I, I need wisdom. And to be able to sit there with this godly group of brothers and share that shepherding, that pastoring burden together has been of immense benefit to me and I think, I pray, immense benefit to the congregation and to the people we are trying to help. As a pastor, I rejoice in the opportunity to share leadership itself with other men who are raised up in the congregation. Um, just as leaders are a gift to the church, fellow elders are a gift to the pastor. Uh, I don't have all the skills that are necessary, the gifts that are necessary, to shepherd a congregation of any size. Um, and so I need men who are differently gifted, who round out my own giftings. I need men who are, who are godly um, to, to spur me on. Just try to make sure you've got godly men around you that meet those qualifications of Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, that the congregation is recognized as elders or whatever they would call them. Uh, and then together as a group, pray that God will grow your congregation to more and more health. It often is the truth that, that we need a picture of what should be and what, what we want to know what we're aiming for. And, and that's, that's really what I think you just saw and, and what those men sh sh uh, shared. What, what biblical church leadership can look like, what we desire for it to look like. And no, no church hits the perfect mark, but, but we can all strive for that. And so that's why we're spending this month looking at what does biblical church leadership look like for, for two reasons. One, we are in the midst of selecting elders, identifying those that we believe God is, is raising up. That's all this month. By the way, you can pick up a packet for, to nominate somebody from me after the service, or you can go online at the website, and you can do it all online, but nominations are open until the first Sunday in June. So one of the purposes that we're doing this is to, again, make sure we're all on the same page as we think about what is it even that, that God is having us look for in elders. But the second reason is, is really, very honestly, to raise the bar to raise the standard. And this is needed in every church, is we, we, we tend to bring in our own 
human past and our own human preconceptions about what leadership should look like. And often it is not biblical. So we're reminding ourselves this, this month of what true biblical church leadership looks like. We're, we're using a, a picture, it's on your worship bulletin there, that, that hexagon there. Uh, that, that is a picture, what, what we could call a profile, not just of biblical church leadership, but really of spiritual maturity. This is something obviously that we need to find as we're, we're looking at any particular person for a position of church leadership. But even more, this is for you and me, as, as we are followers of Jesus Christ, whether we are male or female, whether we are young or old, this is what we're called to grow into. This is the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in you and me, is to make us more like this. There are some primary sources we're drawing this from. The qualifications for spiritual leadership don't just come out of tradition or history. The, f- the four primary sources we'll hit on over and over again are, are first what Paul has written to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, the, the first seven verses there. Secondly, what, what Paul has written to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. What the Apostle Peter has written, particularly in chapter 5 of his first letter, the first four verses. And, and ultimately, what, what Paul is, is teaching to the Ephesian elders that we see recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. Those are passages we'll come to again and again and again. Those are primary passages. There are some secondary sources that we're using. And when I say secondary, they are very distant second to, to the primary source of Scripture. But we're drawing from uh, Alexander Strauch and his ministry, Biblical Eldership Resources. We have a partnership, a new partnership with that ministry. They've been a resource to us. How do we select elders? What are we looking for in elders? What does a healthy elder leadership look like? They, they, are, they are giving us resources and coaching in that. And by the way, uh, if you want to read more about this, that text there that you see up on the screen, Biblical Eldership, an excellent book to dig in further to this. A second secondary resource comes through Dr. Gene Getz and uh, his ministry through the Centers of Church-Based Training. Uh, he's written a book, a, a seminal book as well, called Elders and Leaders. We have a, a connection with Dr. Getz through Dr. David Olford, one of our elders. In fact, on September 26th, that's a Wednesday night, uh, Dr. Olford has arranged for Dr. Getz to come and spend an evening with us. So we'll have our, our Wednesday night dinner as normal, and then it's open to the entire church, but Dr. Getz will be with us, and we'll be doing some teaching and interacting with us that night, September 26th. I highly recommend this. So let me take you in how this profile even developed. Obviously, that hexagon is, is uh, the, 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 the con- conception of an artist trying to put all of these passages in one succinct picture here. But how did this come about? The qualifications for spiritual leadership, these, this profile of spiritual maturity, we begin to see it in Paul, in what Paul was teaching the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He is meeting with them in a place called Miletus, and he's giving them instructions there. And we read particularly in verses 29 and 30 that he knows he's going to be leaving them soon. And he's concerned about what's going to happen after he leaves. 
that even though he started this church and and he's trained these men, he says, I I fear that after I leave, there's going to be others who come in among you who are, as he describes, fierce or savage wolves. He says, there's even going to be some from within you, some of your own group here who will rise up and distort the truth in order to, to draw a following. What's he worried about there? He's worried about what happens or what can happen in the life of any church, that people can come in from the outside, bringing their agendas with them, wanting power, wanting control, wanting influence. He's worried that that even from within, even people who've been in the church for a long time, that there can be people who who suddenly begin to pursue a particular path that represents a, a veering off from the gospel. And he's warning them, as you, as you think about raising up future leaders of the church, be ready for this. You need to choose the men you're choosing wisely, is implied in what he's saying. Timothy adds to this profile. Timothy was a protege of the Apostle Paul, and Paul actually left Timothy in Ephesus when Paul went on to other missionary work. Timothy functioned essentially as what we would think of as the teaching pastor of the church in Ephesus for several years after Paul left there. And as Paul hears about the situation, he realizes that some of his fears were realized. And so as he writes to Timothy, a young pastor, we read in 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, stay there in Ephesus, Timothy, even in spite of what's going on. You need to stay there, he's saying, to instruct certain people not to spread false teaching. So he sees that what he was worried about has happened. There have been people who've come in from the outside with their own agendas, who are are attempting to teach things that veer off from the gospel, who are unqualified to lead, in other words. And there are very obviously people who want to lead, who want to be put in positions of leadership and who are not qualified. We see this in Verses 6 and 7, some have deviated from the truth of the gospel. They've turned aside into into fruitless discussion. And they want to be teachers of the law, though they don't understand what they're saying or they're insisting on. He's talking about people who want to have influence and control in the church and for whatever reason are not theologically or morally or otherwise spiritually qualified So he writes the rest of the letter really to assist Timothy in what what should you be looking for as you select elders? What do you look for as you try to recognize who is God raising up to lead the congregation here? Similarly, Titus adds to the profile. Titus is another protege of the Apostle Paul, and Titus was with Paul in Ephesus for some period of time. And then when Paul went to the island of Crete. He took Titus with him. And Paul and Titus went through the island of Crete, and they established a number of churches there. And then again, as Paul went on to other missionary work, Paul leaves Titus in Crete to, to really oversee all those churches there. And just as happened with Timothy in Ephesus, Paul later hears how things are going in Crete. And he writes to, to Titus, Titus 1.5, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. For there are also many rebellious people, idle talkers and deceivers. They mislead whole families by teaching for dishonest gain what ought not to be taught. 
Paul has the same concern of what's happening in Crete, that people who are not qualified to be leading as elders have, have worked their way either into those spots or are aspiring to get control of those spots. And so his instructions to Titus, particularly in chapter 1, are what should be the model? What is the profile of what we're to look for as we select elders? You know, this has been really the pattern all throughout church history. Uh, we are human beings. We are fallen human beings. Even though we are saved, we, we bring the remnants of our flesh with us into local churches. And just the fact that we may be good leaders in, in other realms of our lives, whether it's in the business world or the educational world or wherever it else it may be, when we come into the church, that doesn't make us automatically qualified to lead the church. And Satan always seeks to divert the church. Satan always seeks to corrupt Jesus Christ's work through his local church. And so selecting elders, actually even before selection, preparing elders, raising up men who potentially could be godly elders, is so critical to do when we look at what is necessary for the church to be healthy. Finally, one more addition, the Apostle Peter. Peter writes in his letters, especially in his first letter, 1 Peter, he writes obviously to churches that are under persecution. Churches that are in Asia Minor, that, that the social scene around them was, was, was uh, very negative towards Christianity, much like our society is becoming. And many of these believers, like believers today in other places of the world, were facing open, hostile persecution for uh, their Christian faith. And so Peter writes to church leaders who must care for people who are undergoing persecution, who are suffering for following Jesus Christ. What is, what is when he thinks about what it is to lead people who are suffering, who are under persecution, what is the main image that Peter has? We see it in 1 Peter 5. To the elders among you, be shepherds of God's flock. It's that idea of caring for people like a shepherd cares for sheep. And so Peter adds to the profile by adding what it is to have a shepherd's heart and to exercise a shepherd's care towards people in the church. So when we put all of these parts of, of uh, all these passages together, all these sources together, we get this profile. Again, this is just what you have on the front of your, your bulletin and what's on the screen. That's just one artist's attempt to put it all together in a way that we can see it all at once. But it is a good way of bringing all of these together in, in six major areas. And uh, again, I need to say this is not just for selecting elders. Every follower of Jesus Christ is called to grow in this spiritual maturity profile. If you are genuinely saved and the Holy Spirit indwells you, this is a work that the Holy Spirit desires to do in you, whether, again, whether you're male or female, old or young, a new believer or a mature believer, He has you on that trajectory where He wants to help you grow increasingly in every one of these areas. But elders and pastors in particular are called to grow in this. Why? Because they're supposed to be examples to us. They are called to be examples of increasing maturity to the rest of us. So the remaining few minutes, what I want to do is I want to just take two segments of this hexagon and, and kind of unpack them just a little bit more for you. This will be the still kind of a skimming coverage. 
and I, I encourage you to dig in on your own. But as you think about, first of all, what you want to grow into, and secondly, about who God is putting perhaps on your heart to nominate as an elder, here's two areas that you should think about all that with that as an overview. The first area is that red segment of the hexagon called desire. We're looking for men, as we seek to select elders, we're looking for men who have a genuine desire to serve the church as an elder. And the first aspect of that is, is the desire must be spirit-motivated. In other words, it's not enough to say, you know, I, I like the, the sound of the title, elder, I want the title, or I want that position, or, you know, I want to exercise more influence in the church, and the way to do it is, is to, to get to be an elder, or, um, you know, I, I want some kind of power or control. Uh, th- those aren't proper motivation. The motivation that the Scripture describes is a spirit-motivated desire. It is, it is created by the Holy Spirit in us. It's not generally seen somebody who wants the title for its honor or its privilege or its, uh, its, its power or control. We see the Holy Spirit doing this kind of work throughout Scripture. Just a couple examples. In Acts 13, with Paul and Barnabas being selected and sent out by the church on the first missionary journey, we don't see a picture of them advancing themselves, saying, you know, you should send us. We're, we're qualified to do it. No, what you see is the church body, in that case, the church in Antioch, as they are worshiping, as they are together in fellowship and teaching and learning, the Holy Spirit collectively puts on the hearts of that congregation, it is Paul and Barnabas that I want you to send out. So you see that spirit-motivated desire realized through the church identifying them. Similarly, in uh, Acts 20.28, you see an indication of this as well, where Paul tells the Ephesian elders, Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders. What is he inferring there? The genuine desire to take on the shepherding work of an elder is something that has to be created by the Holy Spirit in us. So our challenge in this church, but even if the Lord one day moves you on to another church and you're select, part of selecting elders there, the challenge of the church in selecting elders is to make sure that the systems that we have, the processes that we have to identify potential elders, to develop them, to select them, and, and to appoint them, that those, those processes and those systems, they're biblical and they're trustworthy and they're transparent. In doing that, what we're seeking to do is listen not to the voices of people. We're seeking to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the necessity of having a process and a system that is biblical and trustworthy and transparent. And we are doing, I am personally doing what I can to make sure that the present process of those three things, that it is biblical, we're going on the biblical qualifications, that it is trustworthy, that you can be assured that the way a name has worked through the system is with integrity, and ultimately that is transparent, that you can see how the process works and the results that it yields. That desire not only needs to be spirit-motivated, it needs to be a godly desire. 
Look at what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.1. If someone aspires to be an elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. It's the desire to do the work of being an elder. It's not the desire, again, to have the title of an elder, to have the position of an elder, to have the perceived status or control of an elder. Our true desire, a godly desire, is the desire to do the work of an elder. In fact, if someone is, is coming on to as taking a position as an elder, thinking I'm just like a board member like I would be at the YMCA or some other social organization, I, I show up for one or two board meetings a month, they, they have no godly desire. There's no evidence of a godly desire there. There is too much involved. There is a burden that, that is part of being an elder there. A genuine God-given desire is to do the actual ministry, the work of shepherding as an elder. Paul says he aspires to be an elder because he desires to do the fine work, the work of shepherding God's people and care for the church. Sadly, it's, it's not hard to find men who want the title or want the position or want, the, want to step into that position because they think it will give them some influence or some control or or some kind of status. It is hard to find men who have the true desire, who are willing to take on that role because they have a good burden of, of shepherding and caring for God's people on their heart. Tabidi Anabwale, one of the, the, the men who you heard in that video clip there, he says this, in my experience, the problem in many churches is that most men aspire for little more than comfort, anonymity, ease, and just about anything else except leadership responsibility. And that is a reality because leadership responsibility, the, the responsibility of being a shepherding, a shepherd caring for the people, takes sacrifice, it takes time, it means carrying a burden, it means setting your hobbies and your recreation uh, at least lower in priority than the responsibilities of shepherding a congregation there. It is a work that a man must desire to do. But consider the impact upon a church when God raises up elders who truly have the desire to do that shepherding work. Not just the title, not just the position, but the, the desire to do the work. The Bidianabwale goes on to say, can you imagine the Christ-exalting power of a church filled with men possessing a strong, godly desire to lead Christ's people in their homes and their church. That's what we desire. What a model that would be. And so our challenge in this elder selection process is to identify and prepare and select and train men to be more than just board members, but to be shepherds, those men who have a godly desire to care for and feed and lead God's people. Well, closely related to godly desire is an eagerness to serve. Peter mentions this in 1 Peter 5, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care with eagerness. One of the best ways, I think, to evaluate a man for eldership is this man that I'm thinking about, that you're thinking about. Is he is he have this kind of desire, this eager desire to look at where is he serving now? Is he presently serving in some way in his church at all? Is he the kind of man that, well, he'll serve if you give him a title 
and a position that has some status with it, or that he won't if you don't? Or is he the kind of man that he's just naturally serving, whether he gets any Qual- or any, any credit for it or not, any notice of it, whether he has any title for it. It's just in his heart to serve. We're looking for men, essentially, who are already doing some of the work of shepherding the church. Because those are the men who are serving out of eagerness. That's the kind of desire that we're looking for. Alexander Strauch puts it this way, the man with the Spirit-created motivation for the work of eldership will devote much time and thought and energy to caring for the people. There is no such thing, he says, as a Spirit-given desire for eldership without the corresponding evidence of sacrificial loving service. Well, again, closely related to godly desire and an eagerness to serve is a desire that is not reluctant. Again, Peter says, we're not looking for men who serve because they must, or under compulsion, some versions say. We're looking for men who want to be shepherds, who who want to do that willingly. What does it look like for a man to serve under compulsion? What does it look like for a man to serve in a leadership role, using Peter's words, because he must? That would be a man who reluctantly lets himself get, in, gets, get talked into a leadership position, talked into becoming an elder, you know, because so many people are telling him, we really need you. You got to take this because we really need you. There's nobody else. Or this would look like a man who, who agrees to serve, even though it's really not in his heart to serve, out of guilt. He's just a man who says yes to too many things, and, and a couple of people have leaned on him and, and, and put a guilt trip on him, and so he agrees. That's a man who serves under compulsion. That's not a man who serves willingly. Or it even may look like a man who, who, whose wife wants him to take the position, or his friends want him to take the position, and so they lean on him and keep working on him until he accepts that position. That is not the kind of motivation. That, that evidences the reluctance, the very reluctance that Peter warns about here. And when a man serves under compulsion, when a man serves reluctantly, guess what? When things get hard, when that burden gets heavy to bury, he is subject to the temptation of bitterness, of becoming bitter because he has this responsibility. He's subject to the temptation of resentment, of resenting the people that he's called to be a shepherd of. Maybe even some instances, he's subject to the temptation of entitlement, of feeling, you know, I do all this, I put in all this effort, I'm entitled to, and you can fill in the blank of where that can lead there. And so we need men who are willingly Uh, offering themselves to serve, not under compulsion. Well, that's the red segment, but desire alone is not enough. Desire must be matched by godly character. And that's the second segment of this hexagon today, the yellow segment that, that the overall term is integrity that brings together many of the aspects of godly character. The first aspect of integrity is seen in Titus 1.8. An elder must be devout, or other versions that you may have, an elder must be holy. Now, now what is it to be, be holy? I mean, we think of, isn't that what Jesus has done for us? And yes, in one sense, that's true. If you, have, if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, you are what we call positionally holy. In other words, God now looks at you and He sees not your sin, past, present, or future. 
He sees Christ's righteousness, which you have put your faith in, covering you. He sees Christ's perfect holiness. So positionally, we are holy. But as we walk in Christ and we follow Christ, we're called to grow in holiness. We're called to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work of making us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, who is holy. And that's a long, lifelong process but there is to be evidence that we are growing in that, particularly in the men that we look for as elders. And so our challenge is to identify and to develop and to select and to train men who will be examples of holy living, who will, by the way they live, evidence a life that is growing into increasing conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. The second aspect of integrity is described by the phrase, above reproach. Paul mentions this in 1 Timothy 3.2. Now the overseer, that's another word for elder, must be above reproach. And this is the same basic idea that we see in Titus. In Titus 1.7, an elder must live a blameless life. To, a, a man that we're considering must be what we call above reproach or live a blameless life. Now think about that for a moment. Are, are any of us blameless? I mean, think about what happens during political campaigns. The media digs in and they sift through a man or a woman's life and they look back as far as they can and they dig up whatever dirt there can be. Well, if the media did that to you or to me, particularly if they looked into our lives prior to coming to faith in Christ, they'd find plenty of dirt. None of us would come out blameless, right? John Calvin even points out the, 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 the tension here. By blameless, Paul, he writes, Paul does not mean someone who is free from every fault, for no such man or woman could ever be found. What he's talking about here is a man who is not marred by any disgrace that could diminish his authority. So, so here is what really we're looking for. To be blameless, to be above reproach, means that there is nothing in your life that would be legitimately damaging to your moral or spiritual reputation. Yeah, we all have things in our past. What have we done to address those? Have we gone back? Have we asked for forgiveness? Have we made it right? Is there any unresolved situation morally or spiritually, ethically, in any way that, that, that could be brought up with the valid accusation he or she has not dealt with this properly before Christ? Those are the kinds of situations that we're to be on guard against. So the test really, as we consider a man for elder, is does he have any unresolved, justifiable complaints against him? Is there someone who could come out of his past and say, you did this to me, or you were involved in this, and you've never repented from this, you've never dealt with this, you've never made restitution for this? Or here would be another test question. Do the people closest to the man his wife, his kids, his relatives, his close friends, do they see, do they know of things in his life that would be disqualifying? Often a man may aspire to be an elder, but the kind of life that he's lived in his marriage or is living or in his home or with his relatives or with other people who know him really shows he's not blameless, that he has things he needs to deal with in his life. The third aspect of integrity is seen in 1 Timothy 3.7. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. 
Who are outsiders? Outsiders are those who are outside the church, people in the community, people in his workplace, people in his neighborhood, particularly those who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. Why should we care about what people outside the church think about our church leaders? Because the reputation of our church leaders directly impacts the evangelistic witness of our church. If people know of dirt, if people know of valid accusations against one of our pastors, one of our elders, one of our staff, one of our other church leaders, it gives them reason publicly to say what that church is preaching is all a sham. Look at the way this man or this woman lives. That is all a sham. And so we do care about the reputation that our leaders have in the community around us. We need to ask questions like, what are the people that work with this man? What do they think about him? Particularly the people who are not believers. What do his neighbors think of him? What is life like as one of his neighbors? What kind of reputation does the man have in the community, in his workplace, in his social settings? Closely related to a good reputation is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.2, an elder must be respectable. And that word respectable, it comes from the Greek word cosmios. That's where we get our English word cosmetics from. Think of what Paul is implying there. We, we use cosmetics to make ourselves more appealing to those around us. Paul says that the life of any leader, the life of any Christian ultimately, but especially the life of any leader is to be lived with a respectability that makes the gospel more appealing, that makes Jesus Christ more appealing to the people around him. And so we need to ask questions of somebody that we're considering. Does this man conduct himself towards other people in a way that earns their respect, that that fits in even with with, with cultural and biblical standards and, and norms there? Does he live a well-ordered life that is part of what directly impacts the, the appeal of the gospel and drawing people to Jesus Christ? The fifth aspect of integrity is uprightness. We see this in Titus 1.8. The elder must be, some versions say just, other versions say upright. And this, this adjective, it, it's related, it comes from the noun that we see all through Scripture, righteousness. To be right in the eyes of God. To, be, to, be, to adhere to God's standards. To be living within the boundaries of what God has given us in His revealed Word here. Now again, none of us do that perfectly, but we're called to grow in that. We're called in our, and we're called to, as we grow in Christ, we're called to live our lives in a way that exceedingly goes within the boundaries and lives according to God's Word there. So we ask, have to ask questions of any man that we're considering. Is he now showing in his Christian life evidence in how he lives that, that he is living a just life, that he is a fair man, that he is an honest man, that he is a man of integrity, how does he handle his money? What does he do with his debts? When he gets involved in disputes, is he fair and is he just? All of these go to, to the man's uprightness, his justness. The last aspect of integrity is one we've already touched on, but now it's highlighted here. Integrity involves being an example 
Peter calls elders as shepherds of God's flock to be examples to the flock. Again, no leader will ever be in this this life uh, on this side of seeing Jesus Christ perfect, but they are called to be ahead of us. They are called to be leading us down the path of spiritual maturity. And so as we seek to identify and prepare and select and, and raise up elders, we're looking for men who can actually, by the way they consciously, intentionally live, show us an example of what it means to grow in Christ-likeness and grow in spiritual maturity. I realize this is a heavy responsibility for elders, knowing that, that people look to you as an example. But you can consider how damaging it can be if an elder is not conscious of that, if an elder is not intentionally living like that. One of the speakers in that video clip talked about we're to be a picture of Christ's likeness, and it is a very dark thing, a bad thing for the church if we are a picture of the opposite of that. And so we need to ask questions like, does this man behave in a way that younger believers could look to and, and, and imitate, and we'd be happy with that? We need to ask, do the people in the church look to this man as an example of Christian faith and maturity. All that's wrapped up in being an example. Those are just two segments of that profile, and we'll go on in the next few weeks to look at some of the other segments of that profile. You know, I pray, my prayer is, again, that God would be raising the standard of how we look to our leaders in this church, how we seek to raise up elders, how we seek to prepare elders, how we seek to select elders and appoint elders. And, and by that, create a, a more a, increasingly healthy in, environment of church leadership here at Central Church. That, that, that is something that every church needs, and that's something that, that we are consciously making an effort to grow in. Well, let me close with this. When, when we think about this, whether you are somebody who is in church leadership or somebody who aspires to church leadership or somebody who who doesn't even think you'll ever be in church leadership, all of this can be kind of daunting. All of these requirements. And again, we've just done a third of them today. It can be discouraging. We can look at this and say, I'm never going to be there. Uh, It seems to me, maybe you feel in your Christian life, I take three steps or two steps forward, I fall back three steps. Maybe you think of periods in your life where where, where you go through real, real lows in this. And all of this seems so far off and so unattainable. Can I leave you with this encouragement? If you genuinely know Jesus and Savior and Lord, he says, as, as Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, he's begun a good work in you. He has begun by saving you and indwelling you with his Holy Spirit. He's begun this, this, this process of spiritual renovation in you. But I love what he goes on to say. He hasn't just begun it. He will go on to complete it. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Growing in this, uh, fitting into this spiritual profile is, is not just a matter of my self-effort or your self-effort or, or our, our effort collectively as a church. It is the Holy Spirit producing this work. This is what we call the work of sanctification, this ongoing transformation of who we are. So be encouraged that even though progress may seem slow 
at different points in your life. He's begun this work in you. He promises he will continue it. He will complete this renovation project so that when you stand before Jesus Christ one day, your salvation, my salvation will be complete. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for, first of all, for saving us, for beginning the good work in us. Lord, if there's a, a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman here who is not even sure that that has occurred in their life, I, I pray even this morning they, you would prompt them to take the steps to explore that, to talk to somebody, to pray with somebody, to make sure that that good work has begun in their life. For Lord, for, for those of us who, who have the assurance that it, that it has, Lord, we look to you for this promise that even if we're in a period right now where it seems so slow, or we seem, seems like we have even fallen backwards, that you are at work in us, and you promise by your indwelling Holy Spirit to continue this renovating work in us. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead us in increasing spiritual maturity. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us as a church body together to to set the standard higher, to develop young men as these kinds of leaders, to identify them, to raise them up, to select them, to empower them, to equip them to lead us in this kind of godly leadership. We pray this, Lord, that our church would be increasingly pleasing to you and increasingly a light of Christ in this community. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.